sun shines bright in those hills far away Where back in my childhood I'd wander and play And when I think about it now, it all seemed just like a dream Sitting on the front porch with my granny breaking beans Welcome to the Breaking Beans Fiber Podcast Breaking Beans, the Appalachian Food and Fiber Story Project is an initiative of the Community Farm Alliance to tell the story of how local food and farming in Eastern Kentucky can contribute to a bright future in the mountains. We'll be doing something a little bit different on this show. When many folks think of farming, they automatically think about fruits and vegetables. While farmers do give us one of our most important life sources, food, they also give us so much more. On this show, we'll explore the amazing world of fiber farming. Did you know that natural fibers straight from the farm used to be the way that we got all of our materials for our clothes? Did you know that fiber crops can also produce the materials that we need to make rope, twine, netting, and a whole lot of other useful textiles that we use every day? While many fibers are now made from synthetic materials, there's a movement growing to return to natural fiber textile production. Natural fibers that come from plants and animals, such as flax, canaf, hemp, and wool, can produce fine quality textiles grown right in our backyard in ways that are not harmful to our environment. Supporting the natural fiber sector benefits our community farmers as well as the health and sustainability of our planet. We're looking forward to bringing you stories from farmers, producers, artisans, and others who are building our region's fiber sector to benefit our people and our planet. In this episode, we'll spend time with two fiber farmers right here in Kentucky. We'll begin with Alvina Maynard, an alpaca farmer in Madison County. Then we'll travel just outside the bounds of Appalachia to visit with Kathy Meyer, a sheep farmer in Bourbon County. Finally, we'll talk with Ed Crowley, who is opening a new mill that will benefit fiber farmers and enthusiasts throughout the state. We've got a lot to do, so let's get to it. drove out to rural Madison County, just outside of Richmond, to visit an alpaca farm owned and operated by Alvina Maynard. On a beautiful 83 degree day, we talked with Alvina about her love for alpacas and her visions for a more sustainable fiber movement. So I thought I'd start out just asking you, how did you get your start farming? Well, it was the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And so I went and did the whole adulting thing and found out it's all it's all a farce. Don't do it, kids. If you're listening, don't grow up. So I didn't want to do the office cubicle never being outside because when I started asking myself what really makes me happy, being outside, being with nature out in the country was really where I found the most joy in life. And here I was locked up in an office all day long and sometimes not even seeing sunshine. So that that's not how I wanted to live the rest of my life. So I started doing some soul searching. I wanted something where I could be flexible, where I could be available for my children, 
where I could feed my my love of nature and somehow turn that into a job and never work another day in my life was really the goal. So oddly enough, I saw a commercial for alpacas, had never thought about farming before. I, I don't know why, but I don't come from an agricultural background. So when I saw that commercial, it just piqued my curiosity. And being military, I found myself walking into a movement that I didn't know existed where veterans are transitioning into agriculture. That was another thing that piqued my interest. So I started looking into the resources that were coming available, the Farmer Veteran Coalition. So things like that all just started falling into place. And it was one of those divine intervention moments where God just said, yep, this is what you're supposed to do. Keep going. And here I am. Your story is definitely an inspiration. I'm curious, did you have a background in fiber farming before you started with alpaca? I didn't have a background in agriculture, textiles, fashion, design, any of that. (laughs) I came to alpacas because, one, the divine intervention just kind of happened that way. I'm weird. And so are alpacas, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I kind I like weird. I like different. And alpacas are uniquely efficient, dual-purpose livestock, and they're relatively new to the U.S. I figured everything else was kind of already taken. So this was something that was new that I could get in as it was being introduced to the United States. Alpacas were named officially livestock in the United States on the 2008 Farm Bill. So I could enter into the industry at its infancy and be a part of it maturing and growing. Whereas I felt like I would be trying to elbow my way in if I were trying to enter into another sector of agriculture. And I wanted, I wanted a space that provided genuine connection, experience, both adventure and tranquility at the same time. So alpacas, not only are they, they quiet animals, <laughs> They don't make a lot of noise all day, but they're relatively small livestock. They're easy to manage. They have padded feet instead of hooves. So all of those aspects appeal to having children around. I wanted to not have to be worried all the time about my kids wandering around in the barn. I wanted to feel safe. And alpacas are curious, but still standoffish. So they don't bombard you. They don't try and get up in your face. And they're not, they're not violent animals. They're not aggressive. So all of that kind of made sense and all fell together well. I think that my background in the military of building information networks and leveraging those information networks has served me well because it's not just about the health and care and upkeep of the alpacas, but it's definitely been a vertical learning curve in what do you do from there? You know, what do you do with the fiber or the rest of the animal even? What do you do from there? And so it's been a lot of research in all those different areas of the supply chain, building those connections with those different levels of the supply chain to understand and take our harvest into a profitable product. So I would say that that aspect of my previous life has served me well, even though I I had zero textile background. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do on your ranch and how many alpaca do you have and where do you sell your product? So I care for anywhere from 75 to 100 alpacas, depending on the time of year, which means I'm a grass farmer. Nobody clued me in, and apparently I'm just an idiot and didn't think about it. If you raise animals that eat grass, you should probably learn how to grow grass. <laughs> I'm still learning. We're doing intensive rotational grazing now with movable electric fence. That's an adventure all in itself because there's all sorts of challenges with getting water out to the pasture as you're moving the fence and also shelter alpacas for their big babies. They don't like rain. So I have big open, you know, 10 acre fields that I'm trying to divide up into small paddocks and rotate them. So that means I got to think about their shelter. So what I have been doing is running them out and running them back in at night. <laughs> because if it rains at night, then they'll just be out there getting rained on. But more so to the sun, it's hot. So these are fiber-bearing animals. They're wearing sweaters all the time. So trying to think of how to make sure that they can still get access to the shade. We have tree lines that we try and incorporate into the paddocks on hot days. That's the summer months, and uh, we take the their fiber off we harvest via shearing give them their haircut in april and we go through the whole harvest and decide with each animal's fleece what its best use is and the majority of our harvest gets sold to manufacturing companies that use economy of scale combined with other alpaca fiber farms in the U united states to be able to manufacture much more efficiently than I could here on the farm by myself. We produce well over a thousand pounds. You produce generally around 10 pounds an animal. So there's no way in a lifetime that I could hand process that much fiber, let alone in a year, because next year we're shearing again. What I end up selling most here are those goods that have been professionally manufactured with our fiber. So socks, Hats, gloves, scarves, shawls, blankets, rugs, all of those kinds of things that you can make from alpaca fiber. Another cool thing about alpacas is they do produce several different grades, even on their, their body. We want to make sure nothing goes to waste if we can help it. So the fiber that comes off of their chest, belly, and legs, that's what goes into our rugs. It's still super soft, but it is too coarse to be made into something that's going to be worn close to your skin. It would end up being prickly. But it makes absolutely amazing rugs. And uh, so all the good stuff is what ends up going into the higher-end scarves and shawls that are amazingly super soft. We sell at Farmer's Market. We're in the downtown Richmond Farmer's Market and the Lexington Farmer's Market. And if you look at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or keep up with our newsletter, we post what days we're going to be at which markets. And we also sell alpaca meat. Alpacas are dual-purpose livestock. Pound for pound, they're 25% more efficient than beef. They taste like a sweet version of beef, but with the texture of tuna. And we want to make sure nothing goes to waste. So those animals that their fiber has coarsened, meaning that the fiber is not high enough quality anymore to be made into our profitable goods that we carry. That animal 
ends up costing us more money on the farm than it does making money for us. And so at that point is when we send them on to freezer camp. They go on to the great green pasture in the sky. And that also creates space for us to be able to continue breeding. We obviously have limited acreage. It can only have so many animals per acre on it. So selling alpaca meat also enables us to continue to keep our herd size up Our meat products are carried at Good Foods Co-op in Lexington. There's a restaurant in Louisville, Game. Game Louisville has alpaca burger on their regular menu. Great. What are the things that you're most excited about in the natural fiber sector? Well, one of the things that is a driving factor for me is living with purpose. And I think that despite me not planning this whole life out. You know, God's plan is better than any plan we could come up with ourselves. Caring for the world starts with caring for the earth. And I am super excited to be a part of this that just, it found me as this is a way that we can impact positive change in going forward is bringing that awareness to our relationship with our clothes and how that impacts our planet. I'm at farmer's market and it's still a lot of people look at me (laughs) with confusion in their eyes of why are you at farmer's market? Because not a lot of people understand where their clothes come from or what they're even made out of. I mean, most people have an idea of cotton and most people have an idea of wool, but most, a lot of folks don't really pay attention to the content on the tag of their clothes anymore. In recent history, the slow food movement has seen a lot of success where it has brought that awareness mainstream where people are asking questions now of where their food comes from and what's in their food and what went into making, growing, processing their food. So that awareness is much more mainstream now. So I'm really excited that the slow fashion and slow clothes movement is also starting to gain traction And people are starting to ask those questions now, where their clothes come from. And I'm not damning those of the past for doing what they thought was the right thing to do. I think that we've learned now that there is a better way than having consumable clothing. The fashion industry has made it so that they want us back in the store every three to six weeks. And so clothes have since become disposable And yet, because synthetic fibers are cheaper, they're made predominantly by synthetics, which are plastic. They're not biodegradable. So not only have we increased our consumption rate of clothing, but we've also made them out of a non-biodegradable substance that is going into a landfill. This return to natural fibers coming back around to being mainstream is gonna be a huge environmental impact. I'm super excited to be a part of it because obviously me starting this whole journey in the first place of, well, what makes you happy? You know, being out in nature, being out in the countryside, and that's very important to me. To be a part of preserving that and making it better into the future is really what we're all about. Change will really happen in our society when it's driven more by the demand. So consumers and designers who are the touch point, the retailers that are carrying the products in their stores, those are the ones putting products in front of the customers. I am 
the genesis of the supply chain. I am the fiber producer. Obviously, the raw commodity that I produce has to exist in the first place for designers and retailers to even put those items in front of consumers. I would say that we have been slowly working through the supply chain, bringing manufacturing back to the United States in a way that is labor efficient, which is why it was exported in the first place, because it was too labor intensive, it was too expensive. And so, but thankfully technology has come so far that now we have 3D CAD knitting machines where items can be printed. We have automated cut machines where you, you have a laser cutting fabric. You have all these new technologies that make it so that the expensive labor has decreased dramatically. Going from the raw commodity all the way through to a finished garment, there's still a little bit of gaps when it comes to completing that total supply chain so it flows from one end to the other smoothly. There's a lot of challenges with natural fiber, which is a lot of the reason why textiles went to synthetics. Synthetics can be reproduced exactly the same time and time again. It is a man-made product and textile manufacturing equipment likes something that could be replicated easily and, and quickly. With natural fiber, it's not quick because you have to wait for the animal to grow it or you have to wait for the plant to reach maturity. So you can't rush nature, but also natural fibers are not exactly uniform. They do have variations in it. When it comes to manufacturing equipment, being able to adjust to those inconsistencies in natural fiber, some of the machines need to be, the settings on them need to be babied a little bit as opposed to a synthetic, which would just be the same setting over and over again. Also, I see a lot of the slow clothes and slow fashion movement focusing on those natural fibers, but I don't see a lot of bringing the two worlds together. There is a number of associations that are wool growers, that are alpaca producers, now hemp farmers, natural fiber producers, marrying up with designers and retailers, clothing manufacturing companies. I'd like to see more marriage of bringing those two groups together so that we can understand the challenges that, that each other face and work together through the manufacturing process. Because I think that because the margins in value-added production are higher than with just selling the raw commodity, I think a lot of folks like, like me are just trying to manufacture our own goods or our own finished product and selling those so that we can reap the benefit of it, get that higher margin profit for ourselves, for our farm. But really at the end of the day, I'm a farmer. I don't have any education in marketing, in design, in merchandising. I don't want to be spending my time as a sales rep. I don't want to be traveling around trying to pitch these finished goods to stores. Frankly, I don't have time for that. I need to be on the farm farming. So we need to be able to have all of those different aspects of the supply chain working together in a way that makes sense for all those involved. Speaking of some of the obstacles that you think fiber farmers are facing in Kentucky, what do you 
think would be beneficial or would help Kentucky fiber farmers to be able to grow their business and really move the sector up to scale? Well, what I see as not being a very fast, but a lot of promise into the future route is this exciting push for regenerative agriculture by using things like silvopasturing. Fleece-bearing animals in Kentucky have a hard time in the summers because it's hot and humid here. And also when it comes to growing grass, the alpacas are going to gravitate more towards the shade, which means they're going to decimate the grass that's in the shade and never touch the grass that's in the sun. So one thing that we're doing on our farm and that we're encouraging other alpaca producers in Kentucky to do is to start planting trees in a way where you can do alley grazing between the rows of trees. And you're also at the same time introducing another crop. The trees could be nut or fruit producing trees, between the spacing, you can plant shrubs, which could also be nut or fruit. And then even in the base of those, you could mulch and grow mushrooms. Introducing multiple species into the ecosystem while solving the problem of adding shade so that the alpacas eat the grass all over the farm and not just the outskirts of the pastures that have the trees already in them. Those production approaches that the challenge, of course, like I said, is is the hot, humid climate. That's a production issue for us. So adding things like silvopasturing to your operation will be a cool way to be able to address that obstacle. Another challenge is that I say challenge, but it's also a blessing at the same time. We in Kentucky, thankfully, are a cottage industry craft appreciating state. So the opportunity for handcrafts of hand spun, hand knit, hand woven, those kinds of items that somebody can do on a smaller scale on as an individual farmer can take their fiber harvest all the way through to a finished garment and be able to make it into a lovely profitable product that is here and available in this state. However, for the industry to grow, we definitely need to move beyond that to more of a commercial production level. And that especially is difficult when the fiber producer's involvement in the supply chain is just to produce the raw fiber because the profit margins, like I said, in that kind of situation are very small. And so it's tough to justify or, you know, even for the farmer to be able to pay themselves a salary for a year's worth of work, you almost have to, as a farmer, do some kind of value added product out of the harvest in order to sell it at a margin where you can make a decent profit. What are your dreams and visions for your own business or your own farm in the future? So, perfectly timed, I just, uh, gosh, a couple weeks ago, opened up registration for ranch camp. So my kids now are six and two, so they'll be seven and three by the time that camp comes around. So they're old enough now that we love having folks come out to the farm. I love sharing all of this. I mean, we're sitting out here looking out the window, the sun is shining, the grass is green, animals are out there and 
my kids come home from school and they play with sticks and they play with dirt and they play with rocks and they play with mud and they may or may not kick poop around. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think there is a longing in our society for a return of that time, of that childhood, of where kids aren't in front of the TV or in front of a tablet or a phone or the computer or where kids are playing outside. And I think even adults to be given the the freedom to be able to play again and not be professional and adult like and you know let's go see be silly let's roll let's get dirty let's go explore i love opening up our farm for folks to be able to come and visit we do we have for a number of years now given tours so we give tours thursday through sunday three times a day by appointment folks love it I mean, we everybody has a great time. It's educational and fun. It's one of those things where everybody's learning by proxy of just being out here in the experience. And I love that. I love instilling that curiosity and and being able to share this way of life with folks. So I see Ranch Camp as the beginning of expanding the agritourism aspect of our operation more and more. I'd like to do workshops, not only on things like nature, native plants and trees and uh, getting down into the, the dirt. There's all of that, but there's also the fiber side of it too, of, okay, well, let's go forage for color. There's, of course, goldenrod gives you a bright yellow, but did you know that black walnut gives you orange? There's all kinds of things to discover on the fiber side too pokeberry, which is totally toxic, not, not edible at all, gives you a gorgeous purpley wine color dye on fabric. Even the weeds out here have a purpose. <laughs> I love discovering things like that. Uh, so we're getting a hold of a bunch of field guides and taking folks out and discovering together. So we're doing shiitake mushrooms down in the woods for the first time this year. So we'll see how that goes. Horseradish, never even knew what a horseradish plant looked like. So we just decided, hey, let's grow one this year and see what happens. So every year we make new discoveries and the farm will continue to grow beyond alpacas, even though alpacas will always be the main production. We're, we're growing the farm to, to appreciate all that Kentucky has to offer in the diversity of it, the long growing season that we have, the rain that we're blessed with. We have a lot of opportunity with agriculture here. So we're gonna continue to see little bits and pieces of that added to our farm and, and share it with others. To learn more about Alvina and River Hill Ranch, visit www.riverhillranch.us. You can also find her, River Hill Ranch, on Facebook and Instagram. Next, we travel just outside the bounds of Appalachia to rural Bourbon County to visit with Kathy Meyer. After a long drive, we pulled up to find Kathy in her barn nursing a young lamb. It wasn't hard to tell that we were on a sheep farm. We sat down with Kathy to learn more about how she became interested in fiber farming and how she imagines growing the sector throughout Kentucky. 
Kathy, would you mind sharing with us what is the name of your farm and what do you do? The name of our farm is Final Frontier Farm and it has nothing to do with Star Trek. That just means that I feel like this might be the last farm that I upgrade from where I bought it. I've been farming a long time and what we do on the farm here is beef cattle and sheep. We calve cows in the fall and we lamb sheep in the spring and we sell calves usually when they weigh six, seven, eight hundred pounds, just depends on the market and usually I feed all the lambs out to finished weights at about 100 to 120 pounds. How did you get your start in farming? I always had an affinity for animals of all types when I was a child and most of us that are like that always think that we want to be a veterinarian when we grow up. I kind of followed that and uh, what you end up doing is you end up in the agriculture college at the University of Kentucky if you want to be a veterinarian. And then shortly after that, of course, I found out that there were a lot of other things besides veterinary science that I could do with an interest in animals. And one of those was a degree in animal science. And so I just really always loved going to my family's farm when I was a kid. I just thought that was, you know, the greatest thing ever would, would be to have grown up on a farm. And even though I grew up out in the country, we didn't particularly live on a farm, but I always wanted to. Uh, I had some really good advisors at UK, and one of them was the UK sheep professor, Dr. Donald Ely, who's still teaching today. And uh, I worked for him in the sheep department, and so I just got really interested in sheep production as well as cattle production. And through kind of fate, luck, and timing, I kind of eventually partnered with the right person and became my own boss. I managed several farms for other people until I got to that point, and then finally I got enough foothold where I could farm on my own. And so that's kind of where we got started and how we became the uh, final frontier family farm. How did you get interested in particular in the fiber aspects? Up until about 10 years ago, I wasn't really all that interested in the fiber. I just wanted to get it off the sheep, get it in the bag, and get it off the farm and sell it for whatever I could and get it gone because I really, I just didn't have a lot of interest in value adding that fiber. But with the interest in local, mostly local food to begin with, but now local fiber, there is quite a lot of value in the fiber that we used to just take for granted and get rid of any way we could. And I began to see that I was leaving a lot of money on the table by not taking good care of my wool and not marketing it. So I began to get interested in that. And then about the same time, I was uh, actually at the time president of the Kentucky Sheep and Wool Producers Association and the city of Lexington approached us about doing a Kentucky, what is now called the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival. And so I just, you know, one thing led to another and now I'm a full-fledged individual fleece selling shepherd. You mentioned the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival. 
Would you mind telling us more about that? The Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival is a festival that's held every May in Lexington at Masterson Station Park. This May, the dates are May 20th and 21st, and the Fiber Festival was started to bring the consumers and farmers closer together. And so when you get to the festival, there'll be live animal displays, such as my sheep, and there'll be people that have fiber animals, also alpacas and bunnies, angora rabbits, goats, mohair goats. All those will be there. There'll be sheep shearing there. All things related to fiber. And then also, there'll be about 70 festival vendors there that are artisans in all things fiber. So anything from raw fleece to finished fabric, you'll find there. We did that so that we would have a marketplace, especially for Kentucky fiber producers, but also most of the vendors there are from Kentucky, but we attract vendors from about 16 states. It's, it's a big deal, and it's a lot of fun, and it's beautiful. It's a good place to come. Can you talk a little bit more about the wool that you sell and how much do you sell and what does it tend to be used for? Well, for instance, this year I probably sheared somewhere in the 1,000-pound range of wool from my 120 ewes plus rams plus a few pets <laughs> that have been around for a very long time. And all that wool goes different places. The very best fleeces, and for me, the best fleeces are the fleeces that I can sell for the most. That's my definition of best fleece. Those fleeces are pulled out separately and bagged separately and skirted, which means we pull vegetative matter and stains off the wool, and we present them in a, in a clear bag for sale at the festival, or people do come to the farm and buy them individually. The majority of my fleeces are still put in the big burlap bags like they always have been and sold like any commodity is to a, a middleman buyer. But we're getting a lot more avenues to sell our wool, so we're getting a lot less wool in those commodity bags and a lot more directly to consumers now. Are there things that you're really excited about in the fiber world in Kentucky right now? I am really excited. It's just almost every time I, I click on my email, there is either a new group or a new, a new organization or uh, a new effort to promote natural fiber, to help producers like myself get their fiber sold. There just seems to be just an explosion of, I guess you could call it fiber fever, uh, that might be a little corny, but there just seems to be an awful lot of interest in local fiber and, and proper marketing. And most of us producers can use a lot of help in that arena. What do you think are the main obstacles that fiber producers are facing in Kentucky right now? I think maybe some, a lot of misinformation. Like I said, over the years, 10 years ago, most of us didn't think twice about just throwing it all in the big burlap bag and, and taking whatever price we could get for it and getting it off the farm before the bumblebees and the mice found it. 
not a lot of us have had a lot of training about how to handle the wool after it comes off the sheep and how to market it. I think communication uh, could be a lot better between the producers and the processors and certainly the end consumer. I think there's a big, big communication gap between those groups of people. And I think if we could do a better job of communicating with the different levels uh, in the fiber community, that we'd all be way far ahead. Do you think that the market for natural fiber is something that is growing or that has changed since you've been farming? Absolutely. I have fleeces that are packaged and shipped to apartments in New York City. Raw fleeces. I don't know how they handle them or what they do, but yeah, I have raw fleeces and that is through internet sales. I have a friend that also has sheep and she does the, the internet Etsy kind of thing. Uh, and I pay her a little commission for her trouble. And then we work it out that way. And I would have never have dreamed of doing that 10 years ago, ever. Matter of fact, there is a funny story. The first sheep and fiber festival and the very first fleece contest we ever had, I took about 10 fleeces to the fiber festival. But I left them in my car because... I didn't think they were any good, you know. I mean, I thought fleece contests were for people that had purebred sheep that, you know, did lots of extra coating of their sheep and did anyway, a friend of mine was running the fleece contest at the time and she said, Where are your fleeces? And I said, Oh, they're in my car. If you don't need them, then I won't get them out. And she said, Give me your keys. And she went out to my truck and brought all my fleeces in. And the next thing I knew, she was handing me blue ribbons and money. The blue ribbons were nice, but I really liked the money. I was just shocked that people would pay seven, eight, nine, ten dollars a pound for my wool that I had been selling for 30 and 40 cents a pound. That was a big wake-up call. What are the visions for the future of your farm? I'd like to just keep doing a better job at marketing my wool. We've reduced the number of sheep that we're running, but my goal would be to still make as much money as I did with less sheep. So be more efficient. That's kind of my, my thing. And I think we do a fair job of marketing our lambs efficiently because that's what we always concentrated on before, but we never really paid much attention to the wool. So I think there's a lot of room with it. And so I've been making some changes in my genetics that I think will help me sell some of my fleeces. I've been making changes in, well, the way we handle the wool at shearing. I have a little extra help around, which costs money, but I feel like I'm making that and more by paying extra attention to the wool when it comes off the sheep. If folks listening are interested in learning more about your farm, where should they go or how should they get in touch? You can get me anytime and I don't mind at telephone number 859-749-7594. And that's my number here at Final Frontier Farm with any questions that you might have about fiber or the sheep or the cattle too. I like my cows too. <laughs> 
And you'll also be at the Kentucky Sheep and oh, Festival. Yes. yes. I've been on the committee since the inception. I guess I've, I've been working on the festival now nine years because this is our eighth annual event. We started exactly a year in front of the first festival. And we have a lot of fun and we have a lot of activities planned. If in any way you're interested in farm animals or fiber or good food, and I don't know anybody that's not interested in one of those, you should come to the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival, May 20th and 21st. As Kathy mentioned, the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival is coming up this week in Lexington, Kentucky. If you're interested in fiber farming, fiber arts, or you just want to put your hands and eyes on some gorgeous yarns and textiles, make sure to visit the Kentucky Sheep and Fiber Festival May 20th and 21st at Masterson Park in Lexington, Kentucky. For more information, visit www.kentuckysheepandfiber.com. To close our show, we'll hear from Ed Crowley, who is embarking on an exciting project of opening up a new mill in Versailles, Kentucky. The mill, which Ed hopes will open its doors in early summer, will be able to process a variety of plant and animal fibers, including hemp and wool. We sat down with Ed on his beautiful sheep farm to learn more about how this mill could change the natural fiber landscape in Kentucky. Can you tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a sheep producer here in, in Kentucky. We have Rombolet sheep. If the listeners were able to look out the window, they'd see these beautiful wool sheep sitting out there. We've got some of the mamas and babies out there now, so... We're just outside of Versailles, Kentucky, and we've bought a wool mill to start a commercial wool mill in Kentucky. So we're really excited about that. What motivated you to get started in the Mm -hmm. fiber industry? Well, you know, other than my wife saying I'm absolutely crazy, you need one more project just to show how crazy you are. When we bought our farm, I wanted to raise Rombley sheep. They make beautiful wool. They're called the royalty of wool. They're part of the merino family. So they have very, very high quality wool. Just to give you an example, the, the first year I sent all the wool up to testing at Yoakum McCall. And our best micron, you had uh, 14 micron diameter. And our worst micron was 22. And our average was 18. Which, by the way, 18 is considered fine, super fine by all the grading systems. So, really high-quality fiber. Ed, would you mind explaining what a micron is for listeners who might be unfamiliar? So, they're really, when you look at wool, or really any kind of natural animal fiber, you're typically looking at three things. One is diameter, which is the microns, how many microns thick it is, essentially. You're looking at the the crimp, which is kind of the, the crinkle, in the wool. That's what gives it some elasticity and ability to stretch and things. Uh, And you're looking at staple length, which is how long it is. So basically the smaller the micron, the better. A lot of people in many cases think they're allergic to wool, but it's actually what it is, is the larger the diameter and the scalier it is, the more it itches. So if you wear 
like a sweater or a running shirt that's next to your skin, it's probably going to be a merino or a romble, one of the very fine fiber wools. If you're wearing socks, it may be an alpaca or a bigger diameter wool. And certainly, even within breeds, there are big variations. But the grading scales are basically anything less than 21, 22 is very good quality. And kind of mid-range quality is 22 and up, and you even have fibers going up over 30 micron diameter. So uh, a lot of variation. And, and that's why when I say we, you know, we tested for micron, that's one of your, your first tests. And so we did that because, you know, again, we wanted to raise really high quality fiber. Our goal was make just this, this beautiful fiber. One of the challenges we found was how do you get the most value out of that fiber? And the reality is, from an economic perspective, raw fiber in the grease uh, only has a certain amount of value. And in fact, uh, if if you're talking about a, a low, I'll call it a low quality wool, that may be as low as fifty cents, a dollar fifty. If you get a really high quality wool, it may be six, eight, twenty dollars at retail, you know, per pound for the wool. But as a producer, you're talking six, eight, ten dollars per pound for wool. But if you take that wool and you clean it and you cart it so the fibers are lined up in the same direction and you you have something called a roving, all of a sudden that price about doubles. Or you take it into yarn, well that price about doubles again. Or you take it into cloth, it about doubles or triples again. So the value added at every step of the process is huge. And we actually here in Kentucky, when we got started on, the, on this, I started to look at, well how do I get my fiber processed? The answer kind of came back, well, you really need to ship it out of state and you're going to pay $40 shipping each way or more and you're going to have to meet a minimum and may or may not be happy with the quality. And oh, by the way, it's going to be six months before you get it back. I said, you know, that's not real appealing (laughs) for me as a producer. And so I did a survey with the help of the Kentucky Sheep and and Goat Development Office and I found out I'm not alone. A lot of people out there have the same issue. In fact, one of the things that just shocked me was that 25% of the producers in Kentucky don't even sell 50% or more of their wool. They're just, they're storing it in a barn, they got it in a loft, because it's too hard to get it processed, too hard to get the value out of it. And that, you know, that really hurts the economics of the business. That hurts the whole ecosystem. And, you know, I, I said, there's got to be a way to fix this. And I started looking at, Artisan mills as a way to, to go do it. Certainly some, some good things about artisan mills, but, you know, I really, if, if I was going to do this, I said, you know, this has to, we have to be able to cover a really broad range of, of types because we've got everything from alpacas to buffalo, you name it, mohair, we've got sheep, we've got goat hair. I mean, there's everything you can imagine here in Kentucky. So I really want to be able to process the whole range. Actually, was through some industry contacts, put in contact with Weight Hill Fibers up in New York. And Bruce Bennett was the owner and operator of the mill, the, the master milliner. And he was kind of anxious to get out of the four, five, six, eight feet of snow every year. So we struck a deal and I bought the mill and we're bringing it to Kentucky. So that's, that's how I went from producing wool to being a mill owner. <laughs> And would you mind sharing a bit with us about your vision for the mill? What kinds of services will y'all offer? Well, two things. First, part of our mission is to support the producer community. And so to do that, part of our vision is that we're going to have 
uh, again, be able to, if you can grow it as a natural fiber, we can spin it. We've got equipment that actually is older equipment, which, which part of the reason we like the older equipment is you're able to adjust everything on it, which means you can handle a much broader range. We actually, on our equipment, when the folks were trying to do the fiber project with hemp and wool combined from Kentucky and spin that, they'd send it out to a mill on the East Coast that basically came back in pretty explicit terms, said, no way, no how, you're crazy, can't be done. And they eventually ended up sending it up to Bruce, who figured out how to spin it. So our, our equipment, to our knowledge, is the only equipment that's ever spun hemp and wool together in recent times. So we can actually spin hemp fiber even. We can handle a broad range. But second thing is, you know, we're not going to have minimums. You know, we have both a commercial line, what we call a custom processing line. The custom processing line is basically for producers to bring in, have their wool processed, and then we give it back to them. And then because we have two lines, we have the capacity, we can do that and still offer good turnaround times. So good turnaround times, no minimums, any type of fiber. We also are going to be able to do everything from cleaning, scouring, oxidization to carding, roving, spinning. At the beginning, we'll outsource dyeing, but ultimately we want to bring that in-house. But even in that, really big focus for us is quality. For example, on the dyeing, instead of it being where we dye it after it's spun, we actually send it to a house that dyes it before it's processed. And the whole idea is that you get a better consistency through the fiber. So those are the kind of things that we're really, you know, we really want to make sure we're just doing a great job for the client. So that's kind of it. Full process, commercial, worsted, semi-worsted mill. We can handle about any type of fiber and really a broad range of services. Ed, what kind of impact do you hope your mill will have on the natural fiber sector in Kentucky? What I hope is that we're able to really provide a catalyst for the industry and not just for the producers. Certainly by offering the services, by we're going to be producing all the way up to textiles for the clothing manufacturers, right? So we'll be buying wool too, not just processing it, but buying it. Not only will we help the producers get better value by having processed yarn or rovings or whatever they're looking for, but we'll also be buying it and hopefully bringing the price up of wool in the state. So that'll help encourage more producers. At the same time, we have the Woolleries just up the road, 25 miles. It's the largest outlet globally for yarn and natural fiber products. Today, most of their stuff comes from out of state. We hope to be able to provide them with in-state, and they're very excited about us starting to be able to obtain in-state processed goods and, and fibers. So I think we'll help be a catalyst for the whole ecosystem. That's our goal. In fact, we're even, two of the things we're doing, we actually have on staff now a certified sorter. They're going through their apprenticeship on their master sorter program. So a sorter is basically, particularly with pack, it's like you need to separate fibers into grades. So they basically do the grading of the fiber. So that's the service we're offering through the mill. We're actually, hopefully, before the next big shearing season, we're going to have a shearer on staff because one of the big issues we hear is, how do I get somebody to shear my, my sheep, my wool? 
it's very hard to get shearers in the state. So we're actually going to hire one and send them out an apprenticeship program with a professional shearer and get them trained so that we can support that. So, I mean, we're really trying to help facilitate some of the things that need to happen to kind of, what I say, bring the wool back to Kentucky. Can you say a little bit more about if, so if folks want to find out more information about the mill and, mm-hmm. and follow what you're up to, sure. Uh, where can they find you? There are a couple of places. We have Crowley's Mill. It's all one word. Crowley's Mill, no apostrophe, dot com. Bad English, but it works. Um, and uh, that's C-R-O-W-L-E-Y-S-M-I-L-L dot com. We also have an Indigo starter campaign, Build the Mill. So we're, we're always looking for support. We've had great support from the state. So we're really excited about that. The Kentucky Ag Development Fund has been fantastic. I uh, couldn't do this without them, so I want to thank them. Uh, so those are a couple of places you can get info. And, of course, you can always email me, ed at crowleysmill.com. Great. And when do you anticipate the mill opening? We'd hope to be open by the end of May, but we're having to do pretty extensive renovations. We're actually going into a cool facility. It's a, what was a hemp mill, believe it or not, that's been sitting empty for a long time, hence the extensive renovations. But we hope to be open by the end of June and spinning um, by the end of June. To learn more about Crowley's Mill, visit www. Crowley'sMill.com. That's www.crowleysmill.com. Oh, the sun shines bright in those hills far away, where back in my childhood I'd wander and play. And when I think about it now, it all seemed just like a dream. Sitting on the front porch with my granny breaking beans. Well, that does it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us on our first ever Breaking Beans Fiber Podcast. Special thanks to Hope Hart and Kelly Haywood of Apple Shop. Hope came along for the interviews and took pictures for the online version of our show, which you can find on our website at www.cfaky.org. Kelly trained us up on audio editing, making the first edition of this podcast possible. Make sure to check out our website, www.cfaky.org, for future episodes. I'm your host, Sam Hamlin, with the Community Farm Alliance. Until next time, keep with that fiber, food, and fellowship.